All right, let's go to Ezekiel. Seems like we've been doing that a lot lately. But if we're going to get through the book, that's where we have to go. I think we're seeing some things here that echo the other prophecies, and yet there are some insights Ezekiel has, particularly for the end-time church and for the end-time nation of the United States and the other nations of Israel today, <laughs> that we need to understand and be prepared for because there is great trouble coming. It is already on the horizon, and in many respects we are already suffering some of the cursings of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. We went through Deuteronomy 28 last night in Bible study and saw all the promises of blessing that God would give his people if they would but obey him, and then a long list of curses that would come if they would not. And no one who was here last night could raise their hand and tell me of any major church anywhere in this nation who teaches that the commandments of God are still in effect. Almost invariably, the churches teach the Ten Commandments of God are done away. And yet, all through the Bible, it indicates that we must keep the commandments if we are to receive blessing. And even the very parting shot in Revelation 22 is that those will receive eternal life who keep the commandments. So after all that Paul wrote, the people misinterpret. The Apostle John was the last man, last man standing, and he said, if you will enter the life, keep the commandments. He said that specifically in his uh, first, second, and third John several times, and then he said it the last chapter in the last few verses of the Bible. But all religion denies that, it seems. It's almost like they won't want the kernel without the shell. In other words, they want Christ without the Bible. They want to lean on him only and deny all the words of God and his words because Christ himself said, if you will enter into the kingdom, keep the commandments. The young rich man came. I mean, here was the young man who came. He says, Master, teacher, leader, ruler. I'm a young man. I'm living life. I want to know how to be in the kingdom of God. Do you think that Christ would have lied to it. I don't. The man was sincerely asking what he needed to do. He said, keep the commandments. Pretty simple. I don't think he did away with that immediately thereafter. You don't give that kind of advice and then just take it all back. Destroy it. No, the Bible is the word of God, and we have to live by every word of it, not just a few things that we pick out that we want to build our religion on. And we're going to see quite a bit about that today as we go through this section of Ezekiel that we've come to. We're down to chapter 13. Chapter 12, he indicts really the whole of Israel. That would be the entire church and the entire physical nation. 
remember that this nation is still under the terms of the Old Covenant. God has not offered the New Covenant to but a very few people. A lot of people think it's offered to them, but they've not accepted the terms of it, and therefore they are still under the terms of the Old Covenant and will be judged accordingly. And God is going to bring famine, pestilence, and the sword upon this nation, destroy it, and take it into captivity. The scriptures are very clear about that. So he says he's going to leave a remnant in verse 16 of 12. And then in chapter 13, he begins to address more specifically not just the people of the nation and the church, but he addresses the leadership, and particularly the church leadership. So let's go there. He's just told us at the end of chapter 12 that he's not going to prolong these things anymore. We are the last generation that will walk the face of this earth before all this mayhem comes to pass. I think that should be very clear by now. This generation will not pass away or all die out before all these prophecies come to pass. This is the generation Christ was speaking of when he said this age or this generation will not pass. Chapter 13, the word of the eternal came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy. So Ezekiel was set as a watchman, and he was told, Though you be a son of man yourself, you're not God, you're man, but I've set you there to tell the way it is. Son of man, prophesy against the ministry of Israel that prophesies or preaches or speaks, and say you to them that prophesy out of their own hearts, Hear you the word of the eternal. Now men can have their own view of what needs to be done. Men can have their own view of righteousness. They can have their own view of religion. But God says, you better pay attention to Scripture, to the actual words of God. These are the only words of God that we have. And he says, man shall live by every word of God. Matthew 4, 4, Luke 4, 4, Deuteronomy 8, 3, I think it is. Three times it says it. It's not done away with. No part of it is. Some things may not need to be done physically, but certainly the spiritual principle remains there. We're told to sacrifice spiritually our lives, our time, our energy, as opposed to sacrificing bulls and goats. So the sacrifice principle is there. It's just a matter of a change in administration. You know, they had daily sacrifices, didn't they? Every day, Israel had to sacrifice animals. We are called upon every day to sacrifice ourselves, our hopes, our dreams, our wishes, our desires, our comfort, or whatever, for others. You know, if you want to do something for someone, that's not really a sacrifice, is it? Because you want to. It only becomes sacrifice when it's something that you don't have in your mind time to do, energy to do, resources to do, or desire to do. That's when it becomes a sacrifice. 
Sacrifice in the Old Testament required blood. And an animal does not want its throat slit and its blood running down on the ground. There is never a good time for that. If you are able to get in the mind of an animal and ask him. If you go into a, an animal pen with a knife in hand, sometimes they'll begin to get really nervous because somehow they sense by your approach, by the way you stand, by the way you <coughs> sharpen your knife or whatever you're doing, that you intend to do something to them. And they can sense it. They can feel it coming. And especially after you stretch the first one up or the first chicken or whatever and cut its head off or slice its throat if it's an animal, the rest of them really get edgy. So it's not something they look forward to or want. When God calls upon us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice day in and day out, he's saying do those things for others that you would not normally wish to do or think you have the time to do because you have so many other things that need done. So many other ways to entertain yourself or produce work or whatever it is for yourself. That's when we are sacrificing. Hear the word of the Eternal. Thus says the Eternal God, Woe to the foolish ministers, and I'll, I'll substitute ministers here a lot because we, we put prophets in a different class, but in the New Testament in Corinthians, Paul shows clearly that to prophesy means to preach. And we use the common, the term more commonly today, ministers or preachers as opposed to prophets. Now there is a different category that is strictly a prophet's office, but inspired preaching is in that sense, prophecy. We're not just talking about someone understanding future events in terms of prophecy here. We're talking about preaching the truth, the Word of God, as opposed to our own imaginations or desires or that which we think is acceptable to people. Woe to the foolish or stupid or unknowing prophets or preachers that follow their own ideas and spirit and have actually seen nothing. And I think that in the church of God today, in its various splinters and branches, you have a lot of philosophies and ideas by different ones who are seeing only their own thoughts, their own focus, their own understanding of what they think they ought to do based upon a very few scriptures without taking into account the hundreds and thousands of scriptures that right now would impact what they're doing. They take a few that we used maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and they're still focused on those and are leaving out a lot of others that could add an awful lot of understanding that they're missing. So their focus, in that sense, is very narrow. It isn't a broad understanding of Scripture. It seems that that is a ditch that most all religions fall into. Back when I was visiting a lot of people, and we had many, many new prospects to come into Worldwide, if I were to enter a house and find out that they were Methodists, I knew 
about which six scriptures they would know. If they were Jehovah's Witnesses, I knew which, let's give them credit, which ten they would know. If they were Baptists, I knew there were certain scriptures they would know. Because they had narrowed their religion down and their focus down to a very few scriptures and ignored the rest of the Bible. And the easiest way to confound them would be to go someplace that they didn't hear every Sunday. Because they were illiterates in scripture for the most part. And I would, it would, it was always interesting. You'd take them over here and say, well, what about this scripture? Well, let's go back to 1 John 3.16. I mean to John 3.16. You know. Let's go back to my favorite, because that's the only one I know about. And no matter where I went, they'd want to go right back there. And I think that this has befallen the church of God as well. There was a time when we took a somewhat broader view and took more scriptures into account. But over the years, that has narrowed down and narrowed down. And the focus has become a few scriptures in almost every organization. Those are the ones they preach over and over. And they use those to validate their own idea of where they ought to do, what they ought to do and where they ought to be going, and they ignore a vast spectrum of Scripture. I don't want us to do that. We go to Deuteronomy and Bible study, where we've been for a good time, a while. We go to the prophets, and we'll go to the New Testament, and we're trying to cover the entire Bible and not let any of God's words fall to the ground, because every part of the Bible has bearing on every other part of it. What we were reading in the Deuteronomy last night is going to have a great deal of bearing on what we read today. They haven't seen anything of God because they're not seeing what all these scriptures have to say. Verse 4, O Israel, your ministers are like the foxes in the deserts. The foxes pad about the desert looking for something to eat, something to prey upon. There's not a great deal to eat in the desert. So anything they come across that's small enough for them to chew on, they will eat. They're looking any, for anything they can devour, anything they can eat, anything they can find for nourishment. So we have ministers today going about a spiritual drought, a spiritual desert, seeking anything, anyone from whom they can derive nourishment. That is, to fill the treasuries so that they can do the things that they think need to be done, when in actuality they have seen nothing. Now, these are God's words. This is not just Daryl. Uh, I don't have an agenda against anyone in particular. It's just that God says that's the way it'll be. This is an end-time passage, and if God says it, that must be the way that it is. All I'm doing is taking these scriptures and applying them to what is before us, because they are written for the end-time church. The whole context here is God 
beginning to take Israel into captivity and to bring cursings upon us because we are a godless nation. And in one sense, we are a godless church. We're going to see some scriptures to that effect as we go through here as well. In fact, we're already there. Say they're following their own ideas. They're not following scripture. In verse 3, and they're like foxes in the desert going about seeking anything they can find. Verse 5, but he says, you have not gone up into the gaps. Neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the eternal. Alright, they have their own view. We've got to preach the gospel here. We've got to finish Herbert Armstrong's work or whatever view they may take based on that. But it's their own idea that is not based on a true understanding of Scripture. And Herbert Armstrong told them, my work is finished, get the church ready. Now read this. Your prophets are like foxes wandering about the deserts. They are in barren ground. They're not feeding in the fat areas. In other words, there's a lack of knowledge there. And God says there will be a famine of the word in the last days in Amos 8. So they're wandering about looking for something that simply isn't there. And the great work that they plan to do is not happening. But notice what he says. They're, they're going in their own ideas, but you've not gone up to the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. They are not preparing the people for what is coming and what they need to be doing so that they might be saved from the trouble that is, come, is coming in the time of the day of the Lord. When God begins to actively intervene in what is happening on this earth. God is not asleep. He's not gone. He sees it all. He wasn't asleep during the days of Noah. It just wasn't his time until the ark was prepared. And Noah preached for over a hundred years there. Righteousness. They wouldn't listen and when the ark was prepared, God sent the flood and destroyed them. God is no more asleep now than he was then. And he said that it's coming on this generation. So it's coming. But he said instead of preparing the people to be able to stand in the battle, that they're seeking their own ideas. That has to apply to the church of God. Cannot be applying to anyone else. Okay? Now, what are the gaps? When you have a wall and an enemy comes, what do they do? They have to breach the wall. They may have to make holes in the wall to be able to take the city. So, it's a, an ancient symbol of battle and of armies and the peace and security within. So he says the ministry is not filling up the gaps. There's holes in the wall. That means the enemy is able to come in. 
Now, how are we supposed to be prepared? You can go to Ephesians 6 and talk about how we must put on the full armor of God. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the armor of faith, and on and on it goes. We need to be drawing close to God. We heard about faith in the sermonette. It's one of those things that we need. It's one of the things Christ says specifically he's going to have trouble finding when he comes to this earth is faith. All these prophecies say that the world is coming apart at the seams and that Israel, the Babylon of today, is going to go down at the hands of the coalition against America. Very clear. And it will happen soon. Probably not long after we invade Iran, which we're preparing to do at the moment. The church has many gaps and breaches in the wall spiritually. So it's a physical thing with our nation, and it's a spiritual thing with the church. Now, if you're going to have a wall around you, a spiritual wall in the church, what's it there for? It's to keep Satan and society from taking you away from God. That's what a spiritual wall is all about. Now, obviously, from this scripture and others, there are great gaps in the spiritual wall of the church. And this society and this culture has infiltrated the church so that we're thinking the way the world is. We like the things of this world. Now, it is not my job to legislate to you your character. It is not my job to police everything you do and everything you think. There are, there are organizations in the Church of God today who try to police everyone. And if they say anything that is not the party line, they get disfellowshipped. If they even talk to someone who is not on the approved list, they get disfellowshipped. That's a fact. It sounds Stalinistic or Hitlerian, doesn't it? You simply can't do that. I can't police you all the time. Don't want to. You have to fill the gap in your mind. You see, it's in our minds that the spiritual gaps reside. And you have to develop the character and police your own mind. That is what God calls you to do. He says, bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. No man can do that for you. It's something you have to do. So we have to police ourselves. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. And that is to make sure that our minds only take in and only retain those things which are good. If we're to have a godly community here, It's not that I'm going to ride around the streets 
and look for everything you do wrong and tell you about it and make you straighten up. You don't see me doing that, do you? Very, very rarely have any of you received personal correction from me or from Nelson or Gordon since you've been here, have you? A few have here and there when something became really out of line that would have hurt others. But it's rare. He who is ruled least is ruled best. Now it is the job of the ministry, the prophets, reading here in Ezekiel, to help people see where the gaps and the breaches are in the spiritual wall and to point them to what they need to do to fix it. When they went back to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and Nehemiah, what did they do? They assigned different parts of the wall to different people. And those people were to fix that particular hole in the wall. Now, Christ brings it down to an individual responsibility. If we are to have a godly community, then everybody in the community has to live godly. In other words, a godly community begins with godly individuals. Now, it's real easy for any of us here to look at and see the ungodliness in each other and to spend our time trying to fix their gaps or spend our time just trying to see their gaps as opposed to seeing our own and doing something about the gap in our spiritual wall. It is an individual matter. You have to police your own mind. No one can. Even God, who could, does not. He has made us free moral agents. He has said, choose this day, life or death. And then he said, why will you die, O Israel? Why do you always make the wrong choices? That has been the history of physical Israel, and unfortunately, it is the history even of the church. Because even though there was a great renewal right after Christ died and was resurrected, and thousands of people were converted in a few days and weeks after Acts 2, there was a great falling away that Paul and John and the other apostles dealt with. And God says at the end time, there will be that kind of falling away as well. And because of iniquity, and it's abounding in Matthew 24, the love of many will wax cold. And the prophets, the ministers, are allowing that. They're not preparing people to go to spiritual battle. To take on the whole armor of God as espoused in Ephesians 6. Let's go on. There's more comment about this as we go through this. So they haven't, they haven't really looked at 
the true gaps, the real breaches between us and God, and done what is necessary to fill them. So if God is condemning the church for not doing that, then we, you and I, had better get busy doing it. He's going to talk about Daniel and Job and Noah in a little bit. We'll get there. But I want to preface that with this comment. Daniel lived right in the middle of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian society. In fact, he came to be a high official in the Babylonian government. And yet, from the very beginning of the book of Daniel, Daniel showed the character, the knowledge, the understanding that he would not even eat the food of Babylon. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. So he started out by resisting all the day-in and day-out things that Babylon would lay on him as an individual, as did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then when it came to bigger and bigger things, he was prepared, as were the others, to also deny Babylon and those things. When they made a huge image and said everyone must worship or die, they had already proved by not imbibing of the foods of Babylon, the drink of Babylon, the ways of Babylon, if you will, the everyday things that they could stand the big test too. God has said, if you're faithful in little, you will be faithful in much. How do we prepare ourselves for the big tests that are coming? Well, the beast power has arisen, and you can't buy or sell or work, except you have the mark of the beast. How do you prepare yourself for that, so that you will be able to withstand against the whole new world order that is about to be sprung on us? The only way is to, little by little, in everyday life, be faithful to God and unfaithful to Babylon. Babylon seduces us. It draws us into its bed, its society and its culture, with things that are glittering and exciting, music, movies, novels, foods, clothing, many, many different ways. It seduces us to go that way. God says, be faithful in all these little things. Do them in a right way that leads to health, that leads to humility and modesty, rather than pride, vanity, and ego and showing off. This is a world that wants to keep up with the Joneses, whoever they are, we have to be like everyone around us. God has called you and me to be out here in a little trailer village in the desert to pull away from Babylon. And to do it in all the little ways. I believe that. We're not to be like them. We're to prepare ourselves to stand against Babylon. Well, you know, there really is a new world portico coming. You can read it on the back of your $1 bill. It's written in Latin. It says, 
one new world order. That is why the national border between us and Mexico is being destroyed. That is why we invite terrorists into this country. They come across that border by the thousands if they want to. They can bring drugs with them, and we are doing nothing about it. Because our leaders intend to destroy us. And they intend to make us peasants in a new world order, one world government, that will be overseen by a beast and a false prophet and ultimately Satan. It will come in as something that is peaceful. It will have humanism at its basis. And Mother Gaia of the Earth to be worshipped, and the sun to be worshipped. It will have its own false prophet that claims to be Christ himself. To reign on this earth a thousand years. That Satan's great counterfeit of God's millennium is mentioned in the Bible. The day, the time, but this day, the seventh day, pictures. Every day, every week when we keep the Sabbath, it is a symbol of of God's thousand-year millennium, the seventh thousand years of man's existence on this earth. That's why the Sabbath is so very important. The world will worship on the first day of the week, which has no meaning in God's plan. It's Sun Day, the day of the worship of the sun, as is Easter. They will sell that to everyone. And the whole world will worship the beast except for a very few who will worship the true God. And even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. So they're planning a new world order, a new vision, a new government that will be worldwide and in control of everything. That is a counterfeit of God's plan for Christ to come back and rule. Now, who is going to win out? That's the question that I pose to you. Who is going to win out? The new world order of man and Satan, or the new world order of the Messiah himself? I think all of us sitting here recognize that this world and the Gentiles will only rule for ultimately 42 months. times of the Gentiles will end. The time of the rule of Christ will start. So we already know who's going to win. Now if you know who's going to win, which way are you going to live? The way of the beast and Babylon and the new world order? Or are you going to live the way of God? I want to be on the winning side. Anytime you get into sports, you want to pick the winning team, the winning car, the winning whatever. Who wants to ride a loser? And yet when God says, separate yourself from Babylon, we have difficulty because we've been attached to the loser for so long that we have difficulty detaching ourselves and hitching on to the winner. And when someone says we need to close up the gaps between us and the world, to build a wall so that the world cannot come into our minds 
We find it difficult. We don't want to give it up. Come on, that's what everybody goes to Vegas to do is lose. We're here to win. We need to be prepared to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. Close up these gaps between us and the world. Come out of her, my people. That you be not partakers of her sins and her plagues. So you've not gone up into the gaps. Neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel. Now what did God tell Israel he would do? He calls Israel a vineyard in many places. And he says that he would be a hedge or a wall around his vineyard. And then in Isaiah 5, because we began to produce wild grapes, God says, I will remove the hedge. I'll remove the protection. You will be torn apart and destroyed. I'll turn you over to the foxes. Says that in the Song of Songs. Well, God has taken his hedge, his protection away from this country now. And he has taken his hedge of protection away from the vine, the church. The nation is about to be destroyed, and the church is already being destroyed. Well, we've got to get that hedge back around us. God says of his latter temple in Zechariah 2 and Isaiah 4, that he'll be a wall of fire and a protection. Not a, not a hedge specifically, it's a different analogy, but it's the same thing. God will put his protection around his true people who are obeying him. It's being removed from most everyone. So the churches are not preparing the people to obey God so that he will be a wall of protection or a hedge around them. They've seen vanity and lying divination, saying, and here's an example of the vanity and the lying things they've come up with, saying, the Lord says, quoting the Bible, quoting God, and the Lord has not sent them, and they have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. See, a lot of organizations in the church today, the splinter groups, are trying to give people a hope, but it's a false hope. It's based on, if you'll stay in my organization and pray and pay, we'll get the gospel preached and God will bless us. And it is a lying vision that they see. It has not happened. It is not happening. And mark God's words here, it will not happen. They'll keep spending their money on TV and on booklets and it will fall flat. It isn't going to happen. It's vanity, it's ego, and it won't work. They say, the Lord says, but God has not sent them to do what it is they're trying to do. They need to be preparing the people to stand. Isn't that what Herbert Armstrong said? My job of evangelizing is done. Get the church ready. Just a different way of saying exactly what Ezekiel is saying right here. But they decided they need to go out and proselyte the world. 
wrong. It made people hope in that, that it would confirm their words. And it isn't happening. Have you not seen a vain vision, and have you not spoken a lying divination? You've dreamed up the wrong focus, the wrong course. Whereas you say, the eternal says it, but wait a minute, I have not spoken it, God says. <laughs> You're doing the wrong thing. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, because you have spoken vanity and seen lies, therefore, behold, I am against you, says the eternal. God is speaking to the prophets, the ministry of the church here, and he says, I am against you. Because you are not preparing the people, not filling the gaps between the church and the world, and making these people obedient so that I will protect them. You're focusing on preaching to the world at a time when you need to be preparing the people to have on the full armor of God. They're seeing the picture wrongly. He's against his ministries that are out here, all around us. Verse 9, my hand shall be upon the ministers that see vanity and the divine lies. That means like a hand on the scruff of the neck. My hand will be on them. Now they may pray, God, put your hand upon us. Well, he's going to put his hand on them. There's not be the way to think. They shall not be in the assembly of my people. Now, that's the kind of hand that grabs you by the collar and chucks you out of the midst of God's people. Neither shall it be written in the writing of the house of Israel, obliterated from the book of life, if they're not very careful. Neither shall they enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the eternal God which he repeats for the umpteenth time in this book. You can go to Zechariah 11, and what does it say? Three large trees there, verse 1. Speaking of men are, in biblical prophecy, regarded as trees, and I think the churches led by men can be also. Three large trees there, cedar, the pine, the oak, I think they are, are going to be cut down. And three ministries, three churches, perhaps specifically three men, but I think three ministries are going to be destroyed and God is going to take the sheep away from them. That is yet to come. Verse 10, why? Because, even because they have seduced my people, saying peace, and there was no peace. If you will just be in my group, they'll say, here is where everything will be just fine. You will have peace and security, and you'll have a ticket to the place of safety and into the kingdom of God. They've made it comfortable for people to sit down with a false illusion of peace and security. And it isn't there. God is going to take it all away. You said there will be peace. You're seducing the people. And there was no peace. 
and one built up a wall, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. Now, is there peace in the churches and between the churches today? No, there's not. Some of them even, in fact, say if you speak to anyone in a different organization than ours, you will be disfellowshipped. That's all it takes. That is incredible. Because this is the only place they'll say. You and I don't agree with that, do we? We believe that God's people are scattered throughout all the congregations. And that he will gather them when he chooses, and he will know whom to gather. He will stir them to come to where he is working. So it's not any one group. It isn't this group. We're striving here to fill in the gaps, to shut the world out, and its evil practices. But we are by no means the only ones who are trying to do that. Now, it isn't organizations. It's individuals and their lives who are trying to do it. And when you boil it all down, isn't that true of us? It's an individual matter. You and I have to build up the gaps in our spiritual wall between us and God and come to begin to have his hedge and his protection around us. So even though we're here as a group, it's still an individual effort to become what each of us has to be. I can't change you, and you can't change me. We can only change ourselves. And if we will all do it, then we will not only have godly people, we will have a godly community. Then we will have accomplished something together. Now, can we help each other? Yes, we can. Iron sharpens iron. We can encourage. We can strengthen. We can set example for each other. And we can help one another. Or we can pick at and destroy one another. That doesn't mean we can't tease each other and kid each other in a right manner and attitude, which should help us all to change. But we need to be very, very careful that we're helping someone build the gap or fill the gap in their wall rather than destroying them as we go. But these churches aren't going to find peace. One built up a wall and lo others stopped it with untempered mortar. So they're building something with mortar that doesn't stick. Have you ever tried to glue something together with the wrong glue? And it just won't hold. It's maddening sometimes. I have these little plastic things that are supposed to stick to the side of your computer that will hold paper up so you can see it as you type. And I've tried different glues. Contact cement, miracle glue, gorilla glue, doesn't matter. After a while, they fall off. Can't seem to find something to make it stay there. Simple little example. But when you're doing masonry work and you have mortar that won't stick, it's frustrating because the tiles or the wall, the rocks or whatever keep falling off. Just not good mortar, not good glue. But we have these churches out here who are trying to build walls and they're not using the right kind of mortar and it won't stick, it won't hold. It'll crack, break, and fall apart. Now, what good is it going to do if you spend all that time and energy? And some of them really work hard. They do. A lot of these organizations, 
work hard at writing booklets and making broadcasts and doing their work. Not that they're lazy, but they're just doing it the wrong way with the wrong stuff. And it'll fall apart. Say to them, which daub it with untempered mortar, that it shall fall. There shall be an overflowing shower, and you, O great hailstone, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall rend it. God is going to send hail and storm and rain, and this mortar will dissolve or break, and what they have built will fall apart. It reminds of what Christ said about building on a rock instead of sand or things that will perish so easily. Same example here. He may have even used this to derive that parable, that teaching. If we build something, we want it to stand. If you are building Christianity, or a spiritual house, a spiritual temple, as God tells us we are, then we want to build it to last. We better go to Ephesians 6. We better use the proper armor, to use a different analogy. We'll mix our metaphors here. Armor to protect the body, or a wall around the temple to protect it. But you better use good mortar, something that will last. Something that can withstand hail and storm and wind and rain. And all of the events of the day of the Lord that are coming about us. What if we're wishy-washy? What if we try to build something spiritual, and yet we allow in our minds and our hearts and our lives the mortar of the world? We take from the world some elements while we are attempting to build a spiritual wall with God. That's untempered martyr, mortar. They won't last. They won't withstand. You can't do the world and God. It just won't work. So which will it be? We'll see a little later those who try to do both. And what happens? Lo, verse 12, when the wall is fallen, shall it not be said to you, where is the daubing wherewith you daubed it? What happened to all that mortar you used to hold everything in place? It's all coming apart. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, I will even rend it with a stormy wind in my fury, and there shall be an overflowing shower in my anger and great hailstones in my fury to consume it. Well, now he addressed here the ministry of the church at the end, didn't he? So who is he addressing here when he says, I'm going to tear apart what you've done? Has the subject changed? Has the antecedent changed? No, it's the same. He holds the ministry greatly responsible for the destruction of the church when he sends storm and wind and rain against it. Should I, be, should I back off from this because I might offend some of the ministry in the church of God somewhere today? I don't think so. 
Most of them aren't listening today. Maybe someday they will. Maybe someday they'll hear this on tape. Or maybe in person. Who knows? They've got to hear it. It's here. It's on the website. This will be tonight, within a couple hours after services or three. They can read it. They don't want it. They don't want to hear it. They want you to tell them that what they're doing is the work of God on earth. And yet when God says, I'm talking to the ministry of the church, that must be who he's talking about, so it must be you and you and you and you and you and me that he's talking about. And therefore, you and you and you and you and me better repent. And we better see what God says and do what God says. Otherwise, anything we build is going to fall on its face. And I'm certainly included in that. And it's my job to tell you the truth. And to listen to it myself. And shut the the world out of my mind and my life. And not build a wall that will fall down under pressure. So I will break down, verse 14, the wall that you've daubed with bad mortar and bring it down to the ground so that the foundation thereof shall be discovered and it shall fall and you shall be consumed in the midst thereof. And you shall know that I am the Eternal. How many times does he say that? Doesn't Matthew 24 say at the end time, the temple will be destroyed and not one stone left upon another? What holds the stones together? Mortar is the way of life. Mortar is society. Mortar is culture. You see, societies are stuck together, whether they be in Malaysia or Europe or the Middle East or South America. Cultures are stuck together by common belief and common practice. So you may have individual stones in any society, but there is a bond between them of cultural and societal things. Now, if we are going to build a wall that is a godly wall, then we as individual stones need to be bonded together with a true society, a true culture, a common belief, a common practice in everything we do in everyday life that bonds us together. We need a society of God, a culture of God. Otherwise, we are just so many rocks, so many stones that cannot hold together. No man is an island. No stone stands alone. God says that the body must be built of individual parts that are put together, to use a different analogy, to make a whole that functions properly. And if a wall is to do what it must be, what it must do, it must be individual stones that are bound together with mortar that sticks. So that we present a united front before the ravages of the world. 
No wall is stronger than the mortar it is built with. No chain is stronger than its weakest link. Therefore, it is incumbent upon all of us in love for our brethren to put aside our desires, our hopes, our wishes, and sacrifice for the benefit of each other. Our time, our energy, our lives to help build with good mortar a society that is godly and that when God begins to destroy churches and walls, ours will stand. You owe it to your brothers and sisters. I owe it to you to explain this to you and me. Then we've got to do something about it so that we can stand in the day of the Lord when he destroys the society of man and its new world order that is about to come upon us and really indeed is already upon us in many ways. Now let's continue. Verse 15. You'll know that I'm God when I start tearing down what you've built. Thus will I accomplish my wrath upon the wall and upon them that have stopped it. Whatever the ministry has built, if it is not built with godly mortar, godly way, it'll fall. And upon them that have dobbed it with untempered mortar and will say to you, the wall is no more, neither they that dobbed it. It's all going away. To wit, the prophets of Israel, or the ministry of Israel, which prophesy concerning Jerusalem. And we know that Jerusalem is a symbol of the church. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. Concerning Jerusalem and which see visions of peace for her, and there is no peace, says the eternal God. There are those in the church today who talk about bridge building between organizations. They talk about bringing peace in the church today. And God has said, I'm going to flatten it. There will be no stone left upon another. All the organizations are coming down. And he says, I will build my organization with people that I choose out of all the organizations that lack thereof, individuals. And I will build my temple through them. That's what God is going to do. <coughs> and it will be a temple that will be built with proper mortar, godly ways, godly society and culture, and it will survive everything that is about to come. You and I have an opportunity to cement ourselves within God's wall, God's temple, and do it with right living and right thinking so that we'll stick. And it won't all fall apart and we'll fall out of the wall. Some will. God says he will purge the rebels. If a stone is stuck in with untempered mortar, It'll loosen a loose brick, and it'll fall out. We have to be a body, a wall working together, a godly society and culture. There is no room for the culture of Babylon. How loud, how long, how often, brethren, must that be said? Does it fall on deaf ears? Has it been so much said that we don't listen? I know it's hard to get the world 
and everything worldly and ungodly out of our thinking and our lives. I know it's hard. But if you are going to survive, you must do it. That's the bottom line. I can shout it. But you have to do something about it. I'm not going to police you. You're the one that has to turn off the radio or the television. Or whatever it is that's polluting your mind with the ways of this world. I can't do it for you. I'm not going to try to police you. I've got a big enough job myself getting myself divorced from the world. A divorce is never an easy thing. Now we have no-fault divorces in our society. Oh, yeah? <laughs> they may not attach legal fault, but I'll tell you what. There is nothing about divorce on any level that is not painful. And divorcing ourselves from this world does not come without pain. God divorced himself from Israel. And it brought great pain to him, and it brought great pain to Israel. We'll read about that in chapter 16 shortly. Not today, but shortly, God willing. So they say they have visions of peace for her in verse 16, but really there is no peace, bottom line. And what peace that they have conjured up in their own minds and given people a false hope for is going to go away when these churches fall on their faces. Because they will fall apart. Based on the word of God. Verse 17. Likewise, you son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people. Not just the male ministry, but the daughters. I just read last night that Worldwide has now decided that we can, they can have women pastors in their congregation. They have studied this matter carefully for three years. Three years they studied whether or not women could preach. And they have decided, with great spiritual insight, perception, and wonder, that Paul was only speaking of specific problems in the specific churches in his specific ministry and that certainly it did not apply to anything that came thereafter. It's scripture, but it only applies then. Now maybe he's addressing here in Ezekiel 13, first of all, the ministry specifically. And maybe he's not talking so much about women prophetesses or preachers from verse 17 down in this chapter, but maybe women here is referring in terms of prophecy to churches as well. So it's the individual ministers and the churches he's addressing here. Individual women, if they do the wrong thing, I suppose, but I would say that it's in prophetic parlance speaking mainly of the churches. The organizations, not just the individual ministers. All right, let's 
see that. Verse 17. Son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people, which prophesy out of their own hearts, and prophesy you against them. So, they're saying things that they want, not what God would have said. And say, verse 18, Thus says the eternal God, Woe to the women that sew pillows to all armholes and make kerchiefs or handkerchiefs upon the head of every stature to hunt souls. Now, that's a strange analogy, isn't it? I wondered about that one over the years, just what was this talking about? And I did enlist the help of some commentaries to see what they had to say about that particular thing. And apparently, when they had individual women who were prophetesses or seers or enchanters or uh, what do they call them today, the women that are seers, that profess to know what will be in the future and so on, and God says don't go there, but what they would do was they would literally make pillows, and my, my margin does say elbows, but the commentators say that they sewed pillows that would attach to your wrists and your elbows so that if you knelt before them, it was comfortable. You know, if you lean on your elbows too long, it gets uncomfortable. So they want to make it easy, secure, peaceful, comfortable. Now, isn't that the way most of the churches of God today do? They want to make people feel comfortable in their organization. That's what churches and religion, even in a broader range of Protestantism, are all about. Come to the church of your choice where you can feel peace and serenity and tranquility and security from everything around you. Rest on the pillows. And that's what this analogy is about. They want to make it comfortable and tranquil and come here and you can have ease and peace. Everything will be okay. You have your ticket punched to go where you want to go, whether it be a place of safety, kingdom of God, or peace and the destruction that has come upon the church. And to make kerchiefs upon the head. Well, those seers also had magical veils that they would put over people's heads. What does a veil do? A veil obscures, doesn't it? That's what it's designed for. So they're hiding from them true reality by putting a veil over their heads so that they cannot see clearly what's going on. And it also hides them inside a private place where things can be put in their head that those who are putting it in want them to hear. You will be peaceful here. You will be safe here under this magic veil of our teaching is the message. And they do it upon the head of every stature to hunt souls. Every stature apparently meaning all ages of people, whatever stature you might have. It could be the young and old. It could be the spiritually aware and the spiritually unaware. Whatever stature people might be, they're all under the same guise. A veil to hide reality, to give you a peaceful environment under that veil, and to have pillows on your arms so that you can lean forward and worship 
the organization you're in, in comfort and peace. I think that is a very good understanding of this. And yet, at the same time, they're headhunters. What do most of them preach? Stay here, give your money to us, and we will do the work of God. You don't really have to do anything. We'll do the work if you'll support us. So pray and stay. I have set myself as much as within the power that God can give me, or is willing to, not to let you get comfortable. I do not want you comfortable. Have you ever worked hard in construction, especially with stones, to build a wall? You don't have much time to be comfortable. Rocks are heavy. Mortar is heavy. Working with rock is rough, hard work. There is not much comfort there. I dropped a railroad tie on my finger yesterday, and there was a rock under the railroad tie. The rock didn't give, and the tie didn't give. And I've got a black fingernail and a skinned, bruised, sore finger right now. Just from what, a little piece of railroad tie that wide, hitting a rock about that wide. That's all it took. And I was in pain. Because I was working with rocks and heavy wood. Anytime you're working with rocks, you better be careful. God has told us to build a stone wall. Don't get comfortable. Don't look for peace and tranquility and pillows under your arms. Because if God gives me breath, I will do my very best to keep you uncomfortable. And that, by that I mean to keep moving up the straight, narrow, rugged path that leads to life. It is not easy. And it says that a rich man is like a camel going through the eye of a needle to enter the kingdom of God. Very, very hard on camels to go through needle's eyes. It reduces them to liquid. Now, I understand about camels going under a low gate in the city of Jerusalem. But the, the analogy is there. Very hard for a camel to get there. If you seek wealth, you're going to have a trouble, trouble getting into the kingdom of God. It's that simple. Yeah, we all need to make a living, but I mean to seek an ab- abundance of wealth and the security that it so-called gives you in this world. So you can become a multi-millionaire with U.S. dollars. What happens when those U.S. dollars go back to their true worth? which is zero. That's all they are, is a notice of debt. No, we've got to work hard at building a spiritual wall to keep the world out, to keep Satan out, 
that we can have peace and security in. They're offering a false sense of security. There's only security and true godliness. Because when God sends his angel out to seal those that are his, they will have to recognize God there. If they see a stone in the temple that has the wrong society, the wrong culture, the wrong thinking, it'll be knocked out of the wall. We must become godly. And I'm not going to kid you, but that's not hard. I've been now trying to become godly for 54 years. Sometimes I look at myself and I think, you haven't made me progress. Now I can see a difference between what I was some years back and what I am today. But I've still got an awful lot of mortar that's cracked that needs to be stripped out. Too much of this world's influence. And I need real mortar. The glue of God's way and His work, work. His thinking. It's hard. Not easy. Middle of verse 18. Will you hunt the souls of my people and will you save the souls alive that come to you? Will they hunt God's people out? Will you be able to save those souls alive that do come to you? Do you have what it takes? Can you give them sound advice and wisdom of what it will take to live? And they are so concentrated, most of them, on doing the work that they don't have time to preach to people what it will take to be in the kingdom of God. The people are basically being ignored so that they can get the gospel preached. That was done in worldwide and God blew it apart. I hope here that Gordon and Nelson and you men who give sermonettes and all of you people who live and set an example for each other and that I will equip you with the proper tools the proper knowledge to build a wall that will stand. And I won't kid you that it's hard work. I'm not going to tell you lies. I'm not going to tell you you can sit right here and everything will be fine. That would be a lie. Sitting here will do you no good unless you build a wall with tempered mortar, a godly life, a godly mind. That's all that will stand in the trouble that is to come. That's all. So if you've got to build a wall, build it right. If you're going to make mortar, don't mix in the ingredients of this world. How many of the churches of God are telling people to be careful what they eat, to be careful what they wear, to be careful what they hear and see, to be careful what they put on their face, their hair. How many churches are telling people to change almost everything 
in their lives. I don't know many. I want you to survive. I want to survive. I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to tell you, you've got to change everything. And if you have the Spirit of God, you'll go to Him and you'll get the strength and the power and the desire to do it. For someone to say, I'm going to try to overcome, there's lady to fail. To try is not enough. You must have a much deeper commitment to it than that. When someone says, I will, with the help of God, overcome, it's going to happen. When someone says, I'm going to try to change that, they're not going to put out much effort. It's going to be a feeble try. You have to be committed to get it done. Not just sort of work at it when you have time. We're to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Every one of them. Not let any of them get away. <clears throat> I'm not going to lie to you. This is what it's going to take. You've already committed yourself. Time of baptism that you would die. That you would become a living sacrifice. That you would not live for yourself anymore, but you would live for God and for each other. Love toward God and love toward man. That you would put aside your desires in order to please God and please your neighbors, friends and relatives. Your brethren. Hard to live up to. But you set your hand to the plow and you can't turn back. God revealed the truth to you. And he's revealing more to you every week. And you can't turn back. You've got to move forward. Come to think and act like God, not like the world. <coughs> Most churches will lie to you so that they might be popular and keep you there in comfort and security and false safety. I'm not going to do that here. If we're going to build something, we might as well make it good while we're at it. I want it to stand when the rain and the hail and the storm hits. Will you live? Will I live? I hope so. We have to make that choice. Verse 20. Wherefore, thus says the eternal God, Behold, I am against your pillows. I am against your soft landings. Wherewith you hunt the souls to make them fly. You tell people, man, you're going to fly. You stay with me. God says, I'll strip the pillows away. The security, the comfort, the ease, the security is going. I will tear them from your arms and will let the souls go. I'll turn people loose from you. <clears throat> That's what Zechariah 11 says. 
even the souls that you hunt to make them fly. We'll give them all this dog and pony show, tell them that they got it made. I'll strip it away. Your kerchiefs, your veils, to keep them from knowing the real truth. Also will I tear and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hand to be hunted. And you shall know that I am the Eternal. Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthen the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. It is a false sense of security. No, God says you must tell the wicked to, re- to get away from their way. If they're to have life, they must repent. Because if they don't repent, they're going to die. And yet all the churches, it seems today, that are in the true church of God, all those splinters, are telling people, you stay with me, everything will be fine, we'll do the work, and God is going to preserve us. That is a false sense of security, it is a veil from the truth, and it is untempered mortar, and it will be stripped away. We must get wickedness out of our lives. Sin out of our lives. Anything ungodly out of our lives. Anything that smacks of lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, covetousness, idolatry. Anything that is ungodly must go. Then we can have life. Therefore you shall see no more vanity, nor divine divinations, For I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the eternal. God is going to finish tearing it apart. And only those individuals in any of those churches who are building true, righteous, holy, spiritual character and living by the ways of God will he preserve. So it's not just here, it's wherever they may be. He is going to draw them together. They will have the character. They'll have the strength. They will police themselves. They will become godly instead of ungodly. And God will preserve them to build his latter temple. And it will outshine by far anything that has been built before. That's what he has in mind. So if you want to be in it, you've got to do some work. We all do. And I don't mean that to be discouraging. God says, if you do this, I will bless you, and I will make you a part of it. It's just that we have to go about doing it. He's not going to renege on his part. It's up to us. He said, if you want to go the way of the world, I'll destroy you with the world. If you will live my way, I will bless you, and you will live forever in peace and security in my kingdom. So the choice is ours. We go one way or we go the other way. We know some will go one way and some will go the other way. And it is a daily task. You and I can all sit here and say, well, I want to go God's way and I want to be in God's kingdom and I want to live forever. Wonderful. That's the decision we ought to make. Now we have to get out there every day and show God that we mean what we say.
That's what it's all about. Not the hearers, not the bowers or the promisers, but the doers. It all boils down to that. So we've got to live it day by day. Day by day, day by day. And if you're going to do it, walk in the Spirit, you need to go to God every day and talk to Him about your commitments and about the mistakes you've made that day and how you need help not to do it again the next day. And when you fail and how you fail, you're always going to God, seeking the blood of Christ to cover your sins and hopefully becoming less and less sinful and less and less worldly and less and less like the society around us. That's what we're committed to do. I, for one, need all the help I can get. I think we're all in that same boat. So let's sacrifice our time, our energy, and our lives to help each other build a wall with good mortar that will stick the ways and the thinking of God. Then, this thing's going to turn out right. And then we will have security because he will put the hedge around us. We're to build a wall to keep the world out, and he will then put a hedge around us to protect us from the world. We keep the world out, and he will protect us from it. That's the way it's set up. So it's up to us whether we'll do that. That's probably plenty for one day. <laughs>